Welcome to After Hours, an interview podcast series from Lady. I'm Laura McClaus Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. As I've mentioned in my previous intros, here at Lady, we are interested in leading intentional lives surrounded by beauty. With this conversation series, I'm seeking out cultural creatives who have used their passions to mold lives and careers loaded with meaning and intention. At Lady, we believe in celebrating slow culture and the more tactile, intimate parts of life. We've been asking ourselves how it might be possible to achieve great career success while still living in an intimate, intentional way. Last fall, I had the opportunity to sit down with a couple who managed to figure that out. Legendary television producer Russell Marash and his wife, Marion Marash. He's been called the father of reality television and the father of home improvement television due to his work creating iconic PBS shows like The Victory Garden, This Old House, and The New Yankee Workshop. Starting at WGBH in Boston in 1957, Russell Marash's programs have been integral to the success of PBS. In the 1960s, he also produced the political debate show The Advocates and Julia Child's The French Chef. It's hard to imagine how different American culture was prior to this time. The United States was truly a food desert before Julia Child introduced the quality ingredients of French cooking to the American public via the TV show that Russell produced. She taught not only the masses, but also Marion, who was so inspired she too became a chef, ran a successful restaurant in Nantucket, and was Chef Marion on the Victory Garden with her own cookbooks. Key to all of Russell's programs is a respect for quality and a respect for the time it takes to do something properly, a celebration of patience, beauty, and tradition, which comes through clearly in the discussion I had with him and his wife. Russell developed the ideas for these programs based on his own passions, truly educational programming that developed out of his own desire to learn more. Russell's passion for life and the quiet meditative actions of cooking, gardening, home improvement, and carpentry created and supported whole industries and networks. Remarkably, the Marashes were able to seamlessly combine their public and private lives for decades. The Victory Garden was filmed in their yard, with Marion cooking vegetable recipes on camera in their kitchen, while the New Yankee Workshop was located in the back of their garden. Though Russell won 14 daytime Emmys, was the recipient of the 2014 Emmy Lifetime Achievement Award, and had his programs watched by millions every week for decades, he is still wonderfully grounded, funny, and joyful. Now both in their 80s, they still split their time between their rural home outside Boston and their summer place in Nantucket, where Russell maintains a large vegetable and flower garden. Together they discussed with me how they created a long, beautiful, and happy life out of following their passions. I personally found this conversation incredibly inspiring. At a time when culture celebrates quick achievements and social media likes, it was invigorating being around curious souls who humbly created out of a desire to learn, share, and teach. I grew up watching your shows, This Old House, and my boyfriend grew up watching Tree Garden, right? Mm -hmm. And he's a huge yeah, Norm. Yankee Workshop. Yeah. Great. Great. So, just right out there. When I started looking you up, and I realized just how much you've done, and also just how influential all of the programs that you worked mm -hmm. on have been to contemporary American culture, and I really think that they've created whole industries. Home Improvement last year totaled $360 billion, which Compared to when you started, I think both renovating your own homes and then did this old house, it was a totally different world. I got started years and years and years ago in the 60s with Julia Child. I was mm -hmm. a callow youth without much background in cooking, couldn't speak French, failed miserably in French in high school and in uh, college. And of course, they lashed me up with uh, Julia Child um, and said, could you go make a TV show with her? And suddenly I was in a world that I had no experience in whatsoever. But I can tell you that it was a life-changing experience. And, um, and then my wife uh, became interested in cooking as a result of Julia and went on to become 
uh, an author and a, a chef and has a, had her own restaurant mm -hmm. uh, operation in Nantucket with others and so it's really it's really changed our our life but I I wanted to simply say that uh, uh, in the in the old days in Boston a there weren't very many restaurants this is Marion hi how are you there weren't, I'm just telling them the way it was back when we first came to Julia. There were no restaurants to speak of, except very fancy French classic restaurants that you probably would not feel very welcome in. And um, you did all your shopping in uh, small stores or what we would consider small stores. And there were no, um, they were, there were no uh, ingredients that, that we take for granted today. You couldn't buy a leek. You couldn't buy a garlic press. People would look at you as if you had uh, horns. I mean, it just they didn't exist. And Julia is talking about pepper mills. I remember she had the, she had her own pepper mill that mm -hmm. it was ooh, and an omelet pan. <laughs> I remember a straight-sided cast iron skillet, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And um, so all of these things have uh, have happened around us and uh, have changed the way we work. Just as we were saying earlier about how the television mechanism has changed from a monolithic, enormous, ginormous organization with hundreds of employees and millions of dollars to spend. That's what it took to produce television way back in the 50s and 60s. And today it's, it's been uh, brought to everyone's hand in the form of a, of a camera that you can take or a, a reason. Or a phone, <laughs> sorry, a phone that you can make a halfway decent program out of. What a change. So you both, you met at BU, right? Correct. And mm -hmm. you were studying theater design and... Acting directing. directing. Yeah. 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 Did you have any idea you were going to go into television? No. No. I mean, I, my experience with television is I, when I was in high school, I got a part-time job helping the guy that sold television sets in, in this town. And he would send me out to help fix them and most of that was antenna orientation. These were contraptions that you put on your chimney. It was dangerous and very uncertain work. We didn't know what we were doing or how to get, but you had to sit up there long enough so that you got a halfway decent picture. Again, one that you would not tolerate today. Mm -hmm. That's That was my experience with television. And then I went into uh, BU and became interested, uh, well I was interested in acting and directing and so forth and television was sort of a foreign country, very few people had even television sets. Yeah. My folks for years thought that what I did in television was to fix them. They didn't really quite bridge the gap between how you make television programs and how you fix them. <laughs> I was pretty good at both, so that, that further blurred the distinction. In the late 50s, television was so young, yeah. and especially public broadcasting was so young. Did you have any idea how big it was going to become and how... how well, it was change? big in the sense that everybody watched three or four channels. That was yeah. all we had. In Boston, we had three, we had two channels. When I, when I joined WGBH, uh, there were two, we were the third channel on the air. There was no speak of, there was no US, UHF, mm -hmm. as it was called. Um, there were these these uh, channels, and 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 it was such luck that 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 got me to WGBH. I mean, what a what a fortuitous experience! First of all, it was well financed; it was much beloved right from the get-go, and people could actually tune it. 
Now, just a little diversion here. Uh, channels 2 through 13 are the VHF spectrum. Mm -hmm. And most big cities had such channels and delivered signals that were easy to receive from most of their audience. Of course, there was no cable, so you had to get it in, suck it in over the wire. If you had a UHF channel, say something that started at, what was it, 20 and went on up to uh, 70 or something, you had grave difficulties in tuning it. In fact, the tuning knob was a slider. It wasn't really a detent knob, so you, you couldn't click it to a spot, mm. or as you can with a radio, a push button. So it was difficult to... And then there were reception problems. Well, all of this was unknown to us, because we had Channel 2, one of the strongest signals that you can get yeah. off the spectrum. And our nearest Channel 2 competitor was in Portland, Maine to the north, and New York City to the south, so we had no competition. So people, out of desperation, out of, because they could, that was all they could get, had to tune to us. <laughs> and you started in, like, science programs? I did. Then? I did. I made a series of programs, uh, a continued series of programs with the benefit of, uh, of MIT, and every week we would stumble around MIT looking for stories. And we had a staff, that, uh, a small staff, and I would roll out this big mobile unit. We would uh, capture uh, uh, events, as we, some events, but mostly interviews and, um, and little mini tours of whatever the facility is. But it was a great experience, and I met some wonderful, wonderful people, including Werner von Braun, the father of German rocketry and mm -hmm. uh, responsible for the v, V2 bombs and that bombed uh, England. Yeah, I interviewed him in a taxi cab in Huntsville, Alabama once. Wow. So you meet some interesting characters in this business. You know. Vannevar Bush, one of the fathers of the atomic bomb. Murray Gell-Mann, famous physicist, and doctors and people that were doing liver transplants. And it was an exciting time, and we, uh, we captured it. We captured our share of it. And how did it feel then going to a cooking show, moving from that to a cooking show? I have to admit, I have to confess something, that when they assigned me, and those, in those days I was assigned mm -hmm. project, I mean, they, I suppose if I stamped my foot I could have avoided it, but they said, no, you're going to could work with this uh, wonderful woman from, uh, well, they didn't know she was wonderful. I mean, she had written this enormous book, and you're going to take, uh, see, see if you can make a TV show out of it. There was no, uh, there was no such thing. I mean, there were a couple of, I mean, if you look yeah. at the record, there were a few limited cooking uh, shows on television. Uh, who was this? Deanna Lucas. Deanna Lucas. Yeah. She had a show that yeah. we've never seen, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. James Beard had done mm -hmm. a, a couple of stumbling uh, programs, and uh, they were not well-received, but it, there was almost nothing. The uh, absurdity of taking this and putting it together into a show that 50 years later, people can still see that same show. We have it here somewhere in the house, and people love it. Right. I'm, like, I'm not a very, uh, actually a pretty horrible cook. Um, I've just never learned, but there's been various people over the years who've been just like, you just need to sit down and watch all of those series, the original French, French Chef series, because that's how you'll learn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's how you, you kind of learned. Yeah, I had a good friend who, whose uh, husband was a psychiatrist, a Freudian psychiatrist. She worked at the station with Russ, and Julia made us interested in food. I mean, she got us interested in food. Of course, he was, he, he did, a, it was a very nice thing. He did, was it two or three shows on a Thursday, and they were live. So what she would do is she would, for, let's say it was a, 
similar well, we're chicken. live on tape. Live on tape. So what she'd do is she'd have everything prepped. So she'd have the raw chicken, the partially cooked chicken, the whole chicken finished so they had it all together. Whatever was left at the end of the evening she or the end of the shoot, she would distribute. And Russ would always bring home these delicious things. He was making $85 a week in those days. So we were having a lot of tuna fish But casseroles. at home we were eating. <laughs> what was the goose thing that she sent Oh, we said one, one day she sent home. It was a whole goose stuffed with prunes and the prunes were stuffed with foie gras <laughs> and I called all my friends and I said we're having a dinner party tonight <laughs> but she was so fun to watch and her her methods were so great that everybody started watching her and cooking so that's really how I got into it we got together as friends to cook just like you would you'd say wow Julia just did this great thing let's let's make it for dinner on Saturday and the friends would get together and cook and that's how we began or really? you could stay home and watch the honeymooners or oh, Milton yeah. Burrow. <laughs> yeah. but you had you know fewer choices than you have today yeah. so we got our share of, of audience yeah she was so quirky that people they even people her. who didn't want to cook would be interested in watching yeah. her because she was such a uh, over the for the time and over the top personality she was very important to the movement very important to the movement i mean again she she came onto the stage at a time when there was there was no um premium paid for good food people ate because they had to not because they wanted to and uh and i, I certainly was true in, in my house my my dear mother brought up on a we were brought up on a very plain uh, post-depression era menu of overcooked meats and uh, mostly red meats and uh, few vegetables and those would have been overcooked as well and you know you, go, you got through that to get to the desserts and then pretty soon you rolled out the other side and that was that was dinner and what a change I can remember when Julia taught us how to in the second program we ever did with her she taught us how to make an omelet and you know those lessons stay with you I, I even I'm a horrible cook I don't cook at all because Marion is so great but I can make an omelet. <laughs> I occasionally burn them, but can make one, thanks to her. And how did you source all of the ingredients and the things that, I'm sure she, everything was so specific. Julia was very good about getting good ingredients, and she had certain little markets, Savinor's Market in Cambridge was her market, mm -hmm. and, and she, he would get things for her. She wasn't big on vegetables. She really wasn't a vegetable cook by any means, and I don't think there were very many vegetables available to her when she got going. You know, it wasn't like now, yeah. farm-to-table kind of stuff. That didn't exist. And uh, But she was very good about finding the right ingredients for the chickens and the, everything else, you know, fish and so And forth. as the show caught on, people would send her stuff. I can remember... Remember the crates of peaches that would sh automatically show yeah. up, and she was a giver. So she would, if you came to her house, she said, "Well, take some pears, or take some uh, salmon, or uh, you know, all kinds of stuff would arrive at the back door." I think a lot of them wanted her to One plug their stuff, which she never did. She wouldn't. But she would use it, and she You'd and she it. knew the difference when we were at dinner with Julie once at a steak restaurant and oh, or a God. meat. <laughs> meat restaurant in Boston and we uh, ordered our steak was on the menu so she decided and she liked steak and so she ordered what was that a prime she said well they they advertised it all as prime meat you know the top of the line so she ordered I don't can't even remember what it was a sirloin or whatever it was and out it came and it was just the three of us Julia and, and Russ and I and she said hmm well it's good it's not she said to us it's not prime so then the waiter came over 
And he said, you know, is everything wonderful? Are you enjoying your meal? And she said, yes, but this isn't prime. And he said, oh, well, we only serve prime. She said, well, you may serve prime, but this... This is not prime. So he kind of disappeared. And all of a sudden, out comes the chef with a side of raw beef that he's got. And it's got prime stamped all over it. You know, purple stamp. And he said, this is prime. She said, well, that's maybe prime. But this is not prime. Okay. So she knew what she was, what she was expecting. And that's, that's, really, that's really the distinction with all the wonderful people that I've had, whether it's Norm Abram with uh, the New Yankee Workshop or Jim, beloved Jim Crockett who taught us all about gardening or Julia. They really know what they're talking about, and they can really taste the difference. Just like Ted Williams had incredible peripheral vision, and he could see the ball coming, and thus he hit a lot of them out of the park. Julia knew what something was supposed to taste like and could correct it. She could mm -hmm. correct for it. That was the amazing. Well, she had an amazing taste, but taste buds. I think you're born with it or something. And if you gave her a soup that had 20 ingredients, she'd rattle off what was in there. Oh, that's parsnip, and that's this, and that's this. Leeks are in here, and she. Would, I mean, needs she could bit, taste need, Needs a bit more. Uh, needs a little bit more cream. Or yeah, a, yeah. A little more cumadin or whatever. Not cumadin, cumin. No, cumadin. cumadin. No. <laughs> Easy on that. <laughs> and did working with her really sort of set up your career? Did that sort of Established no, or no? No. no. What, what happened in those days was on a Tuesday and a Thursday, we would do two programs each of those days mm -hmm. on a Tuesday and Thursday. Again, yeah. and you can still see those programs today 50 or 60 years later. I mean, they never wear out. But on Wednesday, we would do a science reporter. So, and then Monday and Friday, we flopped on our beds and, and thought about the Or you did the week. advocates, or, and it became the Well, later, later, later on, we yeah. did the advocates. So, I mean, it was very definitely, and the, the science reporter thing was, a, was the major assignment. Oh. And this was something we were just hoping that people liked, but at first it was just a local program for the first year. Then they bought it, the network bought it, and then suddenly it became the elephant in the room. But mm -hmm. in those days, it was definitely not, I mean, it was no big not, deal. Yeah. It was no big deal. We didn't really know what we had, I would say. We knew that if we had Doc Edgerton, uh, or if we had... The geodesic dome guy. Uh, Bucky Fuller, or somebody Buckman. like that. Now, that was a show that the whole national audience would buy, but this quirky Canterbridgean lady from Smith is, is not going to uh, shake uh, the world. Shake the world. So eventually, I even uh, wandered away from the French Chef because I was so busy doing other things. Mm -hmm. And then we would come back and, uh, in later years, do any number of series with Julia. Yeah. But she, by then, she had uh, exhausted the possibilities with the French Chef, and we needed other ideas to move it forward. So, and by then we all knew how important a uh, personality she was to television and to the movement, you know, the food movement. Yeah, and in those later seasons, you worked with her as well, right? Yeah, that was with Julia Child and Company and Moore Company and then out in California when we did The Way, Way to, to Cook, Cook and Dinner at Julia's. Yes. She adored that because it was everything she loved. She loved cooking with friends. She loved bringing people in to cook mm -hmm. with her. And this we was, was set up in this great house in, in, in Santa Barbara, and the idea was to invite a winemaker and a chef as a guest. And Julia would put together a menu which would feature 
the chef's one of the chef's mm -hmm. recipes and the winemaking, and then they would have a would invite a group of people, and there would be a dinner party. So it had the kitchen, and it had the, the guest chef, and the vintner, and then the party. And you'd flash back to documentaries of the wine making and of the food making. And, yeah, uh, and she loved it. She, she loved just it. loved it because it was lots of people and lots of ideas going around. Mm -hmm. And she loved getting made up, which was one of the criticisms of the show, that they'd taken Julia, plain old Julia, yeah, and they made her, her tarted her up. <laughs> and yeah. she loved it. She couldn't wait for the yeah. makeup session. Yeah. <laughs> Hair took all day. <laughs> and, uh, and it was great. And she had some good chefs that came. And, um, and Yeah, Wolfgang Puck was one yeah, of them. Yeah, he was just starting out early, yeah, um, early on. German-Austrian guy. <laughs> yeah. And buggy, buggy eyes. Great uh, chef Louis from New Orleans, remember him? He came, he was so darling. He came and he had his, he was so excited. He started as a dishwasher in a hotel in New Orleans and he worked his way up to head chef in this, I can't remember the hotel. And he came with his wife and she sat on the sidelines holding a Bible, making sure that he was going to get through this. And oh. he had his chef's toque and he had his medallion on that some, from some award he'd gotten. He was just marvelous and uh, there were a lot of great people that came on the on the show that uh, were in the in the profession you know she loved it but to answer your original question yeah. we didn't really know how important she was until she became you know time magazine did a cover on her and the french gave her some important medal and i mean it was she she just lived her life in the in the spotlight after that with great modesty, I have to say. That's another thing. To but say she loved it. it. She loved it. And when she got much older, and, and she was, you know, she had bad knees and she was had, had physical problems. And we said, why don't you just let it go, Julia? You know, just relax. She said, oh, if they don't see me, they'll think I'm dead. She loved she loved yeah. the, the interaction with other people. She was stimulated by the yeah. television experience, as, as many, many, many performers are, and they, they cannot not do it. Mm -hmm. With Julia and these other people that, that you've worked with, have become huge stars in their mm. world. Did you have any idea that with any of them that they had that ability to sort of transcend and appeal to the masses? You discovered Bob and Norm and Crockett. Yes, guilty as charged, <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, no, I mean, they wonderful people and and it's a transforming experience but remember where I'm coming from I'm coming from the idea of we're not asking you to uh, deliver a Shakespearean yeah. sonnet we're asking you to tell us what you do and many to many of those people I'm thinking mostly of our experience with this old house many of those people that we featured on that show had never been asked that before. Mm -hmm. In fact, my dear father, who is, all his life was a working carpenter, when I told him about the show, he said, you're going to make a program about carpenters? Who wants to know about that? I said, Dad, I do. <laughs> I don't know how to make sure that the floor in here matches the floor out there unless you tell me. And then when you do, whether or not I ever do it, I'm interested in how you do it, what, what the name of the tool is that you use, the process, the vocabulary, and you empower me by, by those. And that was the simple theory of the show that worked. We weren't taking actors, although there was, there was a, uh, an imitator who decided he'd take actors and, make, and write scripts. Oh, God, was that bad? Remember that years yeah. ago? Yeah. And um, we took real people and just patiently let them explain what it was that they wanted us to know. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was wonderful, wonderful television. I remember when Russ 
met Norm the first time was through a friend of ours who's an architect, and he was using Norm on a building in Nantucket that he was working on. Russ was so impressed by the guy, you know, he said, geez, he knows his stuff. We should do something with him. We should use him. It's all about somebody like Crockett. I mean, Jim Crockett was amazing. Jim Crockett had started on, to, on the show, and he got a lot of letters from people who liked him because he had a very nice grandfatherly attitude, and people loved him. So he got a letter from a young woman in California, and she wrote him this, basically a love letter about how much she loved him, and he, she thought he was fantastic. And she was sending him some of her favorite seeds because she knew that he would enjoy growing them. She knew he didn't know what they were, but if, she, if he planted them, he would discover a lovely plant. And, of course, he opened it up. He looked at the seeds. He said, marijuana. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he knew right away. Yeah. Yeah. And they planted them right out here, I must say. And that was awful. Oh, it gets worse. <laughs> at the time, we had a, a garden at the WGBH in, uh, in the shadow of the Harvard Stadium. Mm -hmm. Wonderful garden, wonderful, wonderful garden, and a great gardener, and so forth. And so we uh, said uh, to, oh, not Jim, but we said, why don't you plant the seeds up? So the gardener took the seeds and planted them up, and pretty soon he had 50 or 60 mar marijuana plants growing in small containers, maybe half-gallon or gallon containers. Now, at the time, gardening <coughs> was in a, a renaissance, and people were very interested from all walks including our police force, Boston police and the Sadies. The state cops loved it. And when they had nothing the better to do in between murders and mayhem, they would stop by at the garden and you know, <laughs> kick the tires and see how the broccoli plants were doing. So, meanwhile, all these marijuana <laughs> are stationed around. Well, Crockett got wind of what we were doing eventually, and he said, I hope you're not going to try to grow these plants here in in, in the garden, because it's A, illegal, and B, it's deeply embarrassing if I were to be involved with that. And we said, well, okay, Jim. And then they all suddenly went away. We don't know what happened to them, but they all went away. Some came never right out seen here. again. You had a, a, out, out here. here. I didn't even know what they were. And it turned to one, one quite a, Quite a lovely plant. You big, know. Big it's bush. great architectural interest. So you'd, you'd been a gardener, and you decided to... No. Bad gardener. Bad gardener. Bad gardener. Bad gardener. That's why you wanted to do the chef. Yeah. Bad French, remember? Yes, yeah. the French chef. Bad gardening. I mean, I love to garden. But I could I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. See, nobody teaches anybody anymore. Yeah. And in those days, nobody taught him. My father wouldn't teach me carpentry. I mean, it's not that he deliberately didn't. It's just there was no time, and so you never learn these things. Huh. And uh, so you you work on your on, on books. There was no computer. There was no Google. There was no uh, search. There was no Wikipedia. You know, all these things that we take for granted today, really. I stumbled around, and we had a we had a, a house with a, a north facing slope. On, on almost pure granite, almost impossible to grow under those circumstances. But I tried, and we had a young family, and I said, we're going to have our own uh, cabbages, and <clears throat> we'll have some tomatoes and so forth. And I had just nothing but trouble. Bug problems, soil problems, growing problems. <laughs> and one night, one morning, he said, I, the, the, um, the broccoli is ready, Marion, in the garden. It's ready, and I want it for supper tonight. Please, I want the broccoli. Okay. So he leaves for work. I go out eventually and look for the broccoli. Cannot find the broccoli. I said, maybe he planted it in another part of the lawn. I mean, I don't know what he did with the broccoli. Could not find it. He came home. I said, Russ, I can't give you broccoli for dinner because I couldn't find the broccoli. What 
do you mean you couldn't find the broccoli? Out eat strums. Of course, a woodchuck had come along and eaten all the broccoli. Oh. I was eaten right down to the nub. He said, but there's, there's the broccoli. <laughs> so at the time, WGBH had, uh, had some experience in doing garden television. Very difficult. Mm -hmm. Think of a time when the cameras are are anchored, these enormous cameras with large cables have to be on counterweighted pedestals in order to work. And you need lighting, and so it was not something that you would take to the backyard. Portable cab cameras did not even exist. In th this is in 1975. And um, they, were, they were not to come for another several years. So we had to somehow, I mean, we had some prototype portable cameras. We had no wireless microphones. So everybody had to have a cable, on, and it was just a lash-up that was just... So we had to survive under difficult conditions. So I said, well, I want to take the parking lot and put in a garden, and uh, we'll take one of the studio cameras that's had enough cable to go from the studio, and we'll set it on a concrete runway down in the mm -hmm. garden, which we did, and this prototype portable camera we'll have for a relief shot and to be able to get close-ups. If it works, it rarely worked, but, I mean, we, we had it. And with the mics, we'll, um, we'll work on every prototype wireless microphone that came. I can't tell you the number of hours it took to get this technical stuff mm. going. So therefore, very few programs uh, existed on other television entities. Nobody was doing outside broadcasts. I remember Ed Morrow had the, uh, you are, is it you are there? Or? Oh, well, he went and visited different homes, yeah. He would yeah. visit Jackie Kennedy in the White House. That was a lash-up, like a baseball game would be shot today with multiple wired cameras and so forth. It was a horrible, horrible mm -hmm. time. I don't want to ever go back there. And uh, But we were doing it slowly, and we were creating the technical uh, know-how, and uh, we, were, we were advancing our, our uh, craft into these areas that no camera had, had gone before until when we quit, the cameras had gone from the size of this table we're sitting mm -hmm. around to a camera that you could, you could pick up with one hand and uh, wireless microphones that were rel reliable. We, we, we worked our way through it, but for years there was no competition for our Victory Garden show because we were in the field and they weren't. You know, it was 19, and when you think about it, it was 1983 actually 84 when my cookbook came out and I was on a tour with that Knopf had taken me on one of these book tours and we were in LA and the, the person from Knopf said there's a woman that wants to talk to you she's with a new cape, some kind of cable channel that they're starting. We went, we met her, and she was. She said, "Well, I'm I'm a representative of a new channel. It's called the Food Channel, and we're trying to get um, people to cook, at, or cooking shows on thing because we have to be open or in action uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. That was '83. Yeah. There was no cooking yeah. shows. When you think of it now, I mean, they're all over the place." But up until then, it was just like, you know, Julia and the yeah. occasional cooking shows. And then in 1983, they just said, well, we can, we can now have a cooking channel where a thousand people can cook all the time. We uh, decided that it wasn't going to happen that you grow these vegetables, which are, is difficult enough, yeah. unless you know what you're going to do with mm -hmm. them. Uh, you may think that you, well, you know, how complicated is it to grow and cook? Broccoli, but oh, it turns out there's a couple of tips that you need need to know, and the same with almost every vegetable. And uh, then they can be combined into recipes. Well, I tried to get Jim. We we, we got Marion to write out some 
instructions on how certain things, a little radish dip, how that might happen. So we'd pick a radish, and Jim would stand there and read what Marion had written. And he would stumble around because he was not a vegetable guy. He was definitely <laughs> he really a hamburger like type. <laughs> and uh, in fact, we had no food service at WGBH save for these disgusting canteen machines. And whenever Jim was missing, I knew where to find him. He'd be pulling the knobs <laughs> on the Mars bars and the Twinkies inside the cafe- <laughs> the, 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 what, what passed for the cafeteria. And so I said, Jim, you got to come out here and read about this radish dip that Marion has sent you the instructions for and he would stumble through it so pretty soon we say yeah Jim it's, it's not working so and there were letters coming from from viewers who said you know now you've shown me how to grow leeks but I don't know what the heck to do with them yeah it was that kind of thing so then we said well maybe they'd tolerate we'd take a couple of minutes and we'd Go it's through mean it. to me. Just <laughs> and of course, Mary said, "Well, I must have forty-five minutes." <laughs> and then we said, "How about forty-five seconds?" <laughs> and so we did. We we made some some. And by that time, had the Victory Garden moved here? Mm-hmm. 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 So we had the kitchen, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of the stuff that we do has to do because of uh, you know we have nice ground to grow a garden. Mm-hmm. We have a nice kitchen to do the. Then we have a workshop, and it's, you know, it has a lot right, to so do. It's sort of like you've created the ideal yeah. working environment, and right. like you work together, and then yeah. you worked out of your home, but still yeah. what you created went out to millions. Yeah. It's, it's kind yeah. of amazing, yeah. but it was all of these interconnected programs right. and yeah. projects. So when others tried to compete with us, they said, how are we going to compete? We have to, have, uh, we have to have somebody that knows how to cook in a place where you can have access, mm-hmm. and there's... I mean, so we, for a while, we enjoyed uh, almost no competition. And at that time, were you also running the restaurant? When did you start running? Started the restaurant in 76. And um, that was a friend of ours who was an architect and his wife and and had started coming to dinner parties. We'd Mm -hmm. met them doing Julia's cooking because that's what we were all doing. We were were getting together Mm -hmm. to cook. And he and his wife decided that they needed to do something together. And they decided they'd try to open a restaurant. And he knew Walter Beinecke, who was the... He was a Nantucket guy. He was a Nantucket guy, and um, who had a big laundromat right on the water in Nantucket. And Jock went to him and said, you know, this could be a great restaurant right on the water. Mm. And he talked Beinecke into leasing the the building to him. And he tore out all the washing machines and stuff and turned it into a restaurant and came to me and to Susan, who was my friend, and uh, said, why don't you come and open a restaurant with us? And we said, you know, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I like the food that you're doing. And uh, my wife and I don't, Lane and I don't want just, you know, a chef that comes in and has a whole, we want, we want your, your dinner parties. Mm-hmm. Is we want your dinner parties in our restaurant. And at first we said, well, you're crazy. That's absolutely. And then we said, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we could do it. You know, because that became that kind of thing. So uh, we went down and uh, opened the restaurant, not knowing what the heck we were getting into, but uh, it turned out to work very well. Right from the beginning, it was one of the most popular restaurants on Nantucket. It still is today. Amazing. Was it a seasonal place? It was yeah. seasonal, yeah. Yeah, June through September. She did that for, what, 13 years? Yeah, uh, 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. And when I read that it was, at least at one point, it was an all-woman kitchen? It was. At one point, uh, well, we had, well, I guess my nephew was opening clams, but... But at one point it was all women, yeah, and 
what was her name from the Washington Post, came up and did a big article on it about all, you know, that was it, all women kitchen. And uh, it was, I guess, unusual in those days. It's still unusual. We had, um, we had a great staff. We had people that came back every year. We had, we had some, obviously. And the some. setting is quite spectacular down there. It's right on the, right on the harbor. Mm-hmm. And for years it looked at the Nantucket Lightship, which yeah. was parked nearby. And But you see the harbor, the coming and going of it. I mean, and the other thing place. is we opened it as a fish restaurant. There was still a small fishing fleet in Nantucket. Nobody else on Nantucket had a fish restaurant, which mm. is so strange. Right? People, people, yeah. people didn't like fish, nor did they like vegetables. And we also insisted, we got fresh vegetables from the farm. Talk about farm to table before it was called that. We had three farms on the, on the island. We got fresh vegetables every day from them. And or shipped in from Wilson Farm. If, if there was like when sugar snap peas first came out, Wilson had got them. And we had him ship down some. But most of the vegetables came from the farms. And we got them every morning and cleaned them and so forth. And we sent out, if you ordered a fillet of sole, for instance, you would get your fillet of sole. But next to it, you would get a side dish of vegetables, whether you liked it or not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the first couple of years, people didn't like it. They didn't eat their vegetables. I mean, the busboys ate them all when they came back into the kitchen. And then I kiddingly said to the waiters, I said, you tell them if they don't eat their vegetables, they can't order dessert. That's it. <laughs> and they That's did say, tell them kiddingly. But um, then, and then it totally changed. People suddenly came for the fish and for the vegetables. It was interesting how it changed. It was amazing, actually. Because by 1984, the cookbook you put out for Victor Garden is a vegetable book. It was vegetable, but not vegetarian. Yeah. And this gal I just talked to, she just wrote, she just wrote about it in the Washington Post. She said it was really the beginning of the of the vegetable cookbooks. Yeah. I mean, it's it was. Nobody had done it, and that's why I think Judith Jones, who was uh, the editor for Julia, Julia, yeah, she got interested in the book because she thought that there weren't any books out, you know, like that out there. She was pretty, uh, a pretty tough cookie about what she thought should be published and shouldn't be, but she she went for it because she thought people should have something to rely on in, in terms of vegetable cookery. I mean, it must have been incredibly, especially at that time, innovative to have them organized yeah, by. Yeah. The vegetables, I guess, yeah. coming from your Victory Garden experience. Yeah. Okay, we've just grown yeah. this mm-hmm. rutabaga. Okay, mm-hmm. what do I do? What with am that? I going to do with it? Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Russ liked the sweet potato chapter. He hates sweet potatoes, but he had to. <laughs> he had, well, definitely. <laughs> and with a lot of sweet potato recipes going on here. When you were doing the Victory Garden, would you film in the summer? Were you filming? Mm-hmm. What was the season? Primarily mm-hmm. spring. Uh, but we also took the Victory Garden to many, many lands, and uh, it was one of the great experiences of our life, wasn't mm-hmm. it, to uh, be able to go traveling with the Victory Garden, because we could find garden stories anywhere. Yeah. And we took the cook along, because she d- did the cooking. Or interviewed. I like that part. Yeah, interviewed yeah. the people. Yeah. I didn't have to cook. <laughs> yes. So we could stumble around uh, Scotland or Ireland or... Uh, Australia. Or uh, Bora Bora. Where were we? Tasmania. Yeah. yeah, we saw the world and uh, and brought these stories back and met fabulous, met fabulous people. people. Yeah. Uh, gardeners, it turns out, are really nice people because they they're nurturing. I think they're nurturing yeah. for their gardens. Remember in New Zealand, my God, the people went. I mean, that's a place to move to. They said at the time that all the young people were leaving New Zealand because they wanted more action and excitement than you could find in New Zealand. It was like going back into the 40s. But everybody was so lovely there. They, I mean, they just went out of their way for you. They were amazing. It was an amazing uh, experience 
honestly. We went to a place called the Rhododendron Trust, which was how many acres? 400 acres of rhododendrons. And we went in, and they were setting up their camera, and I was talking to the woman at the main at the office by the gate, and I said, gee, I said, how many people do you have to take care of all this acreage? She said, we have one person. I said, what do you mean one person? She said, all the work is done by the community. Everybody that lives in the community oh, comes yeah. in as volunteers and takes care of all the rhododendrons. Put New Zealand on your list. Yeah. It's a great garden spot, but the people are great, and the views are spectacular, and there's mountains everywhere with snow on them. And do you, do you feel like you became a good gardener after all of this? It rubs off on you. There's no question about it. Every experience, if you're curious and, and connected, uh, and we certainly were. I mean, I went as much for the gardening as I did for any other reason, yeah. you know. I'm sure we wanted to get a, we wanted to bring back a, a TV show or several of them, but when you're in the presence of some of these really gifted craftsmen, whether it's a woodworker or a gardener or a chef, and you see how they work, it rubs off on you and you bring it back and it, and it, it holds up well. And uh, as I can attest now, because I do a fair bit of gardening now, mm -hmm. and... Uh, and people come to me, of all people, to ask how to do it. And uh, so it's sort of, well, I'm sort of uh, uh, changing hats, but uh, it's because there's so little inf good information mm -hmm. out there that people are thirsty for it mm -hmm. and will accept it. Even, even now, do you feel like the information out there is not quite up to standard? I think uh, quite the opposite. I think it's n there's never been better information for uh, the curious mind. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to be able to go in and with an iPad, yeah. be able to dial up, uh, just to give you a, a, a simple case in, in point. Now, what is it that Begonia is really like? You can't keep it all. I mean, Crockett was great, but there were 20,000 plants that needed, need to be grown. You can't remember it all, and they're all slightly different. But within, within seconds, without taking a doorstop book off the, the shelf and looking through the index, and so, you just simply dial it into your iPad, and you'll get, you'll get some feedback. And pretty soon, you're, you're getting the information that you need. No, it's, it's great. And if you don't do it that way, you're, you're crazy. Good stuff out there. So going toward this old house, you don't, your father had been a carpenter, mm -hmm. and you had been renovating, I think, this house before this one. And First house, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what made you think that a home renovation show would be good television? Need, for the first part of my career at WGBH, almost 20 years, I was doing what they wanted me to do, mm -hmm. including Julia, they, they being the bosses at the, at the entity. And then I said, you know what? I want to create some stuff that I'm interested in. I'm interested in gardening, so I want to create a gardening show. What? You're going to take the parking lot and turn it into a garden? I said, yeah, trust me. And I needed 20 years of, uh, of, of a good record, <laughs> a spotless record before they'd let me. No, I'm just teasing. They were very, very Very good. supportive. Very supportive. Yeah. Anything he said he yeah. wanted to do. So the Victory Garden comes onto the scene in 75, and we publish a book called Crockett's Victory Garden, which, of all things, gets on the New York Times bestseller list and is there for one year. And that was in a time when there was no secondary list of programs on how-to and diets mm -hmm. and all of it. There was one list, and Crockett's Victory Garden nonfiction was on it for almost a year. And um, so the success of the program was, was right, almost right from the start was, uh, was, was, was great. And so after about two years, uh, a eureka moment at WGBH, and they said, you got anything else you want to do? Because you have a fair <laughs> amount of success with this thing. I said, yeah, I've been thinking about, I've been thinking about um, doing something. Um, on this first house that we had 
here, there was no money to do anything. So everything that we did, I would use my my father's experience when I could get it, and uh, which wasn't often, but I would use what he had taught us. And I would take that information and work on um, trying to execute building a floor or a, putting in a window or whatever. So we transformed this house. And along comes the Boston Globe, and they say, TV producer changes his, his house. And people thought it was pretty good. I mean, I look at it now, and it's a little corny. But in, in those days, it was it was something. And a new kitchen, and a family room yeah. that I built. I dug out the foundation by hand. I mean, it was definitely... I didn't go to the bank and borrow a lot of money. I mean, we just did it from from scratch. Mm -hmm. And people would come and look at this house and they say, you know what, I'd, I'd like to do the same thing. And I, But I couldn't do it because, you know, I, I don't have any tools. And I have an old craftsman's saw and uh, very few, a lot of hand tools and shovels and pickaxes, but no, no serious sophisticated tools, let alone the experience to, to do it. But I was, I had no alternative. I want to paint my house. I was going to grab the brush and the scraper and mm -hmm. paint it. And I did some electrical work and some plumbing work and some masonry work you know I, I cringe at what I attempted but in, <laughs> when you're young and and you have no money you, you do what you have to do and then the results were becoming noticed the Boston Globe mm -hmm. thought it was pretty good my colleagues thought it was pretty good so when they asked me you got any other ideas I said well there's one thing I'm thinking about suppose we did a show about we buy a house we form a team together we fix the house on camera really yeah on camera and then we sell a house because you guys don't want to be in the real estate business. They said, well, that's good. So do you think you can do it? I said, yeah, sure. But by now, we were working on this technology. We had the lightweight cameras going. We had wireless microphone. We just had to staff it up, and we had to find the talent in order to do it. I knew this carpenter who'd worked on with my friend on Nantucket, and had the, he had the smallest trim pile of any carpenter. What that means is when you get through with a, a deck and you've got a big pile of trim, you paid for that, and it's going to mm -hmm. be burned up in the fireplace or thrown away. Norm would work on a deck like that. At the end, you'd have barely enough to make a toothpick out of it. And that's a test of a uh, great carpenter. Mm -hmm. And then Vila had appeared in a pilot program that I'd done with his wife. He was, I thought, the perfect subject to ask questions of Norm about what he was doing and how he was doing it, or any of the other craftsmen. So we hired Bob. Bob loved the idea, and Norm was a little uncertain and had never spoken out loud on camera or to a microphone before. And yet, again, if you get them off, of, you're not going to have to read Shakespeare. You're yeah. just going to tell us, what do you mean? square up a board? What do you mean a countersink the nail? What do you mean by these kind of technical terms? Yeah, he could answer that. Turned into a TV show. That's how it started. Did you have any <laughs> idea that it would become this huge... A show that ate the airwaves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, in fact, with, a, with a magazine and all of these other, yeah. like multiple other sideshows and... No, never. At the time I had a good friend at WGBH who said, I give it maybe four shows before you'll yeah. wear out your welcome. Four shows. It's he was totally, still running 35 totally. years later. At that time, Home Improvement was sort of an underground thing. I mean, Didn't Home Depot sense. opened mm -hmm. in 78 in Georgia. When I looked that up, I'd already sort of assumed that it was always around, you yeah, know? Yeah. No, no, yeah. no, no. Arthur Blank hadn't, hadn't invented it yet. But, so. you know, it's funny because when his friend Peter said it's not going to last, I think, you know, and I always put him down for that, but when, then, when Russ said, I'm going to use Norm for a furniture show, I said, honey, watching furniture being built, I don't think that's going to work. 
20 years later. I mean, it went for 20 years before Norm said, you know, I'm tired of this now. I need doubting, <laughs> doubting yeah. prospective audience members in order to do my thing. No, it takes a, it takes a determination. And it's, it's, it's luck. Sure, it's luck. And there's no question about it. But uh, you've got to be determined and you've got to keep focused. You've got to keep your eye on the ball. And what I see about so many imitators, they take their eye off it. They don't realize what business they're in or what the art form is, what the what the instruction should be. And it sure doesn't hurt that he was able to get people who love what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Julia loved what she was doing. You know, Norm loves what he's doing. I mean, Tommy Silva, who we knew as a little kid, lived our, he was our next door neighbor. He loves what he's doing. Crockett but lo knew his stuff and loved what he was doing. I think that passion comes out over television. I yeah, think the, the audience th gets it, you know, from these yeah. people. The other thing is respect. If you show them, if you show a craftsperson r respect for what he does, he'll be eating. He or she will be eating out of your hand, in trying to tell you how they how they do it. And that didn't exist before. Again, think of my father. You know, nobody ever came up to him and said, "Gee, his name was Russ too." Gee, Russ, that 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 really looks great. So it's the care and feeding of these very talented talented yeah. people that you have to uncover and support. And that's that's what it's about. Whether it's sharpening a knife or uh, painting a, a picture or making Fishing or whatever. Yeah. Often it's you're not able to show every single step and how to actually do it, but it's more the sort of the enthusiasm, pleasure that they're taking yeah. in the work that comes through. Having gone back and watched episodes of the various shows, I don't feel like I can necessarily make a souffle or make a chair, but come away with the respect and sort yeah. of the pleasure and enthusiasm for those things, yeah, which makes yeah. me interested in doing learning more. Exactly. I think you're absolutely right. You're often called the pioneer of how-to television, the you know, legend. The father, the father of, of. Now the grandfather yeah. of. <laughs> what are your thoughts on all of the different home networks, food networks, all of the things that sort of followed in your wake? Well, I think that uh, the next chapter will be even less complicated to access. It'll just, you'll, you'll just be able to talk to your voodoo box in the corner and say, taping a joint, a drywall joint, that'll be all you'll really need to do. And some amazing expert will come at you on a screen that will be embedded in a wall or a piece of furniture, or maybe just a virtual screen that will hang down and sit. It'll get easier and easier and easier as far as I can I can see to, to access the information, the tools you need. And then with another click, you'll be able to have them droned in. I mean, we live on an island in the, uh, for a large part of the year where we're 30 miles out to sea. And now we can call up from Amazon and other internet providers the merest trifle, a box of staples or a sharp pencil or, you know, or a box of pasta or a tuberous rooted begonia or a dahlia bulb. And it'll be on our doorstep within sometimes within two days. Well, the traffic is such on Nantucket in the summertime is it would take almost two days to get down to the, store, the one store we have. And when you get to the store, they say, uh, we don't have it now, but we can get it for you. Mm -hmm. No, that's over. That's over. In fact, poor Blank, the guy that invented Home Depot, he's going, going through the same problem. We had no Home Depot when we started, and we may not have one for very much longer, at least not in the way that we think of. Mm. You'll, you'll order this stuff, and it'll come, along with uh, plenty of instructions on how to do it. So I, I think it's a great time to be out there. I think, it. though, in, in response to your question about the other shows that mm -hmm. are out there, a lot of them 
are more for entertainment rather than learning. Yeah. You know, there are a lot. It's like just like watching some kind of reality show or something. You know, it's like, yeah, but, oh, what what is so and so going to do? They're going to drop the cake or whatever. But Marion, think of it. This old house. Naked and afraid. No. <laughs> he saw that for the first time the other day he turned it on. I wanted, how did I miss that? How did I miss that? We could have naked, naked carpenters running around, I suppose. That'll be the next thing, right? right. Yeah, that'll be the next thing. It does become, some of it is, is kind of really silly. This old house was kind of reality, early reality television. It's because, considered so, yeah. yes. And now what is reality television is very scripted, you yeah. know? So yeah. it's a, sort of a weird evolution yeah. that it's yeah. taken. But going back to the, the sort of the technology, you were very innovative in sort of creating the videotapes with Julia Child, the, like the longer the way of cooking. Yeah, the way, the way to cook really exceeded the technology of the time, and then it, it, it was not widely used. Uh, it wasn't, didn't sell used. well. It didn't sell well. And I think it's because it's still it was still fairly clunky. And uh, I mean, look, look at your CD library. When's the last time you put a CD in your in your in your living room? It doesn't happen anymore, does it? It's all off of these phones mm -hmm. and so forth. And the same is true there. I mean, we thought we were being so uh, adventurous by having page numbers that would come up on the screen. So if you were looking for page 149, but it was because we we couldn't leave aside the print. Mm -hmm. history and print is over it's it's gone unfortunately i mean we still um, love holding and reading and and you know our place is full of books and we read them all the time but the kids don't it's over they don't read magazines they don't read newspapers they they use these these electronic devices and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that and there will be those who moon about it and claim that life is not worth living without it. the smell of newsprint and so forth. But it's it's not a large audience anymore. But I guess it's about it's about finding a way to get people to do the things that are by hand, the cooking and the gardening mm. and the woodworking, when we're living in such a technological age, to have mm. that sort of balance. Mm -hmm. And have you found, I mean, with your grandkids and other you know, younger generation that you know, are they still interested? Our grandchildren, mm -hmm. it's interesting, two of them work at Blue Acorn in New York. Mm -hmm. And they're, um, I think they're very involved in the whole cooking thing, but it's now, it's changed so much. It's not go to the grocery store and smell the produce and see what you're going to pick out. Through the door. Sh ship it, you know, get it. But though the quality is very good. Another granddaughter is working with America's Test Kitchen here in mm -hmm. Boston. She's doing more about leading people towards, not necessarily the printed page, more, I think, more towards the... Uh, the information, information. collected over the uh, Years yeah. and want to sell it to you a line at a time. Yeah, yeah. But they like to cook, but they're not not deeply involved in in recipe books. And it's very hard to get people to garden. It still is. Always was. Still is. People like the results, but they don't like the work in, involved. Apparently, or don't feel they can do the work involved. And from my from my perspective, I mean, if I have a if I have a crusade, it's a you don't know it until you grow it. Full stop. Mm -hmm. You don't know it until you until you grow it. But another problem is, you know, the kids, uh, Sophie and John, lived out here this summer uh, while we were away because they be were changing apartment. A grant, yeah, and um, 
she always wants to have a garden when she's out here, so she starts it. They're so busy. You know, she's working for a PhD. He's gone back to college for a master's. They're so busy all the time, plus they have the social life, you know, they're off to a wedding or whatever, that the garden doesn't work. It doesn't work. You need time. Can't tell you how much time he spends in the garden. I think you really need time for that, and I think you need time for good cooking, too. It's, it's not something that just... You know, you can run in at the end of a long, busy day and do. So her plants died because she didn't get a chance to take care of them, you know, and then she was all distressed about it. But, but if, it. You, if you asked 100 people to explain uh, what they consider gardening and how they do it and so forth, you might find two out of 100. Now, in England, it's quite different you might find six who really seriously garden. They go to stores, they buy stuff, they come home, they work with it, they, they do the reading, they, yeah. they watch the TV shows and so forth. It's part of it is cultural, and uh, depending on where you're coming from, you know, if you and your family have been uh, uh, tied to a factory or to a, a manufacturing process, you're not going to want to come home and do physical work in the, in the garden. Yeah. Unfortunately, I remember our technical director was with us. We were shooting uh, in Hawaii and uh, in the Big Island, and there is a volcano national park, I think it's called, and in we went on a helicopter. And when you and the, of course, when you're in the uh, TV crew, the pilot really wants to do his thing. You know? So he comes down, and we get closer and closer. We're about 12 feet <laughs> off of this what they call a caldera or a cauldron mm -hmm. of molten lava maybe an acre or two so you can feel the heat rising and you think to yourself and then chip our technical director said you know my father worked for sikorsky and there's a nut up here that holds the blade onto the shaft it's called the jesus nut and uh, that's the one you hope doesn't fail right now <laughs> you would be as crisp as an english muffin is after a broiler uh, and then again, I remember we had uh, we had uh, Julia with us once, and oh. we were where were we? Norway. We were in, in Norway, yeah. One, uh, final thing I ever did with her. We needed to uh, get her up to the top of uh, uh, some mountain pass and down the other side. So a helicopter was chartered. In fact, we chartered two of them. I said it'd be kind of fun to one follows the other. If you're in the same chopper, you don't get much, but if you're in the other one, so we put her in one chopper and up we went and so forth. And this helicopter pilot, he came with a jumpsuit and it was a, it was a, a French helicopter, aerospatial French helicopter. And he wanted to show us what it could do. And he, there were four or five of us in the technical crew, and he flew us right into the head of a waterfall at about a thousand feet up and did a 360. I thought we were going to all die right there. But we were photographing Julia uh, in her helicopter. We land, and Julia doesn't get out of the helicopter, which concerns us a little bit. And uh, so we said, Is she okay? He said, The pilot said, She's asleep. She slept through the whole she thing. She slept through the whole thing. And not only that, but in Norway in the summertime, of course, there's 24-hour daylight. Mm -hmm. So we got to Norway after this incredible helicopter ride and several other things that we blew it onto the dance about 10 o'clock at night. We get to this picturesque hotel and this picture, everything is picturesque in Norway. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's fabulous. We get into this nice, nifty hotel. Little hotel, simple. sweet hotel. We go to our room and we just... I don't think we even took our clothes off. We just racked down on the bed. Phone, Phone rings. I pick it up. It's about 10.30 at night. Yeah. I pick it up. It's Julia. Oh, 
I said, oh, hi, Julia. She said, well, where are we going for dinner? <laughs> what? <laughs> Julia, it's 11 o'clock at night. Oh, she said, well, you think the restaurant's closed? <laughs> I said, I think probably it's closed. And we were just about to go to bed. She said, oh, don't you worry. I'm going to call them up. They'll open it for us. Dress, dress and, go. and go down to dinner with Julia. She could open any restaurant, so we had to endure another I had to go and have a dinner. Well, I think because she had taken the nap in the helicopter, yeah, she wasn't yeah. so tired. And what was it like working together? It's been fine. He's bossy. You know, he's very bossy. And anytime, people would write and say, Marion, I don't know why they don't give you more time on television. You could do, do a but and I'll, I'd bring that up to Russ. So-and-so says that they think I could have more time on television. <laughs> I was thinking of cutting it back a little yeah. <laughs> I think there's a respect for what each other does. Territorial. And mm -hmm. the territorial thing is, is, is okay. I mean, she doesn't tell me what to grow or how to grow it. And... Uh, or, or in the construction side of it. I mean, we can get into some serious arguments there, but on design issues, but certainly not on how we're going to go about it. And I think you need that distance. I think if you have too much collaboration at that point, you might say, you know what, I think I won't do that. I think I'll watch the Patriots beat the heck out of the Seahawks. No, but I, I mean, I think you have to have these sort of these regions that you, that mm -hmm. you operate in, and that's, that, that works for us. Yeah, it's Russ has never cooked. He doesn't he doesn't like to cook. Uh, well, he did cook a Blue Apron package when I had come out of a hospital for a knee operation, and he did it very well. And but he, now he likes to cook um, on Saturday and Sunday. He likes to make his own breakfast, and that just gets he's like in my way. Okay, get it done. Get out of the kitchen. So I do think the territorial thing works. I really. On the do. other hand, Marion has never been, never worked any of our tools out in the shop. Thank God. For that. <laughs> She's not at all interested in actually physically. You've never put a piece of wood through a saw, have you? Well, I don't know. I'll think I don't about think that. So. I don't, I don't know. think it would be very <laughs> Well, I very remember scary. the first house mortaring big, heavy things for the foundation. Mortaring it. You don't remember that? Well, we won't no, get into an argument don't. now. I, I think that's uh, revisionist. No, it's not revisionist. <laughs> anyway. No, we, we, we work out together pretty well. Over your whole career, what are you most proud of that you achieved? We've had a wonderful life, wonderful life here. We have a great uh, opportunity. We have a great uh, operation down in Nantucket mm -hmm. where I'm able to grow this wonderful vegetable garden that I'm in several hours a day. I mean, it's a great hobby. Marion's got a great hobby with her cooking and... Grandchildren, I would say. Grandchildren <laughs> are now her hobby. I think our family is our biggest accomplishment what we've been able to do, and the continuing interest in the things that we've been able to do. That is very satisfying. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Russell and Marion Marash. We have many wonderful conversations coming up in the next few weeks with models, directors, and fashion and textile designers. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. All episode materials are available at ladyworld.tv and on our newsletter. See you next week. <laughs>